Hello, and welcome to the Andwise Podcast. We are delighted to have you here spending some time with us. Andwise is a technology platform that aims to empower medical students, trainees, and early career physicians navigate the complex financial journey that we all find ourselves on as we aim to help others. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode for the Andwise podcast. Today we have Dr. Joe Savecchia with us. He's a member of the Andwise inaugural medical advisory board. He's been very generous with his time. He's joined on a bunch of calls, most recently with our personal finance fellows. But thank you so much for making time. No problem at all. My time is cheap. (laughs) No, time's the most important asset we have. He's a PM&R doc, a physiatrist by training. He's been a medical director, but I'll let him introduce himself because I can't do justice to anyone's bio. So go ahead, Dr. Savekia. I am currently a medical director of the rehabilitation and post-acute care service lines for a healthcare organization in the Midwest. I have been many things in my life. Almost wound up becoming a doctor by accident, honestly. I was an engineer at the time. I started out many years ago as a paperboy, which I don't even really think exists now and was probably long before most of our (laughs) listeners were born. I then became a pipe fitter. Wow. Then an engineer. Then, gosh, six, seven years ago, my current employer was nice enough to offer me an, an enterprise role. And, yeah. and along the way, you got an MBA as well, right? Was that like directly after undergrad or somewhere along the way? Oh, goodness, no. I'd been out of med school for 15. Years I went back. I was the oldest person by far in the classroom. Great, you've had experience in other fields, so you knew you wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, we've spoken before. Un- unlike some other medical trainees and stuff, it sounds like you had received some guidance about personal finance and about investing. And I forget who you were saying with it was a family member or your father. It was like I was talking, telling the personal finance fellows and honestly for them, it might as well as have been the Cretaceous period, but Black Monday in 1987. Okay. I remember it very well. I had money in the market then. I was a teenager. Anyway, it dumped and they suspended training. My dad actually brought home a copy of the Wall Street Journal and you need to read this because this is reality. And I don't remember everything that was in there even remotely. Didn't necessarily have the education at the time to understand it all anyway, but I remember very clearly a picture of a guy standing on what looked like a flagpole and there was a stairway leading to it that was basically market climb. And he was looking down on the other end and he couldn't see anything. And he was saying, what do you mean it goes down? Yeah, you're right. That was so far back that some of the younger folks, all they've seen is the up the past decade or so. And they, I guess they haven't seen a downturn snake or what was the one after that? Now I'm blanking. But re- regardless, the point that, that you've talked about before is to consistently invest. And I think some of the things that many of our successful investors have talked about is time in the market, right? Not timing the market. Yeah. Time in the market beats timing the market. 
And you've always self-managed all of your portfolio, like it's something like Vanguard or Fidelity, or do you have any other company that you like working with? I have used most of them, not actually by intent, but just because that's the way it happened. I think my first real employer used Fidelity. That was actually a food and tobacco conglomerate. That was also a very long time ago. My training where i did my training used mass mutual and prudential then my first job used fidelity again and they got bought out by private equity who used prudential along the way i accumulated basically excess to my needs liquid assets so i put those in vanguard i've also used i think e-trade and another, there was an even smaller company I don't even remember the name of. The point being with that is I've been involved in IPOs where I had equity grants and they just grant them through the holding company that they favor and then you just transfer them out. Yeah. Have you, yeah have and you, they're all more or less the same. They all offer self-directed options. Are you a spreadsheets guy or have you used any of the software platforms available to track it? Like some people like Empower, Personal Capital, Mint something like that, or you just keep tracking your own spreadsheets? No, I started this so long ago. I'm a spreadsheet guy. And there are things that Andwise emphasizes that are very important, that are less important to me. I'm a frugal person by nature. And at a time, I certainly did actually manually keep a budget because there weren't, I think Quicken might've let you do it. We're talking the nineties here. Now there are much better things. Mint is a big one away. So now they're recommending, what is it, YNAB? You need a budget? That's a, yeah. that's a very well-named piece of software. Yeah, that's a popular one. Actually, Mint recently apparently sent an email to everyone that they're discontinuing their budgeting software in January because it's a free product and apparently they haven't been able to monetize whatever selling data or affiliate marketing or whatever they're doing. They're trying to push people towards Credit Karma, their other product, but without the budgeting features. And it'll just have credit scores. And then the, the other one I see coming up is like Monarch Money. They, they don't sell anyone's personal data, but they charge you like some sort of yearly subscription, like $99 or something. Yeah, I guess to, to each their own, whatever method works, as long as you have some sort of regular check-in to see where you're at with your own finances and your goals. I, I wanted to ask you a question. Since you've had so many different careers and now you're doing exciting things as a medical director, how do you, as someone that's a little bit ahead of the listeners in terms of career trip, how do you stop that natural human urge of shifting goalposts? Like, how do you know when is enough? When you started out, say, after you finished residency, did you have a number in mind? Some people talk about the 4% rule for retirement or 25X your salary. We don't have to get into specific dollar amounts, but did you have a number in mind or do you just find that the goalpost shifts the later in your career you get? No, because what I found with the entire FIRE thing is I'm really good with FI and really bad with ER. I took this job when I became financially independent, which at that point I had zero debt and enough money to live off of doing what I want to do. You, you, said, you, took job, you said you took the job when you were already financially independent. Um, yes. And 
for the beginners out there, basically that, that means you were able to pay all of your required living expenses plus your wants based on whatever investments you had and the income they were generating. Yeah, with accumulated assets. And I won't beat this one to death, but a very long and mathematically involved calculation has shown that your safe withdrawal rate is roughly 3.23. You make it three. And I personally don't have huge aspirations for having a giant house or really fancy cars or traveling first class. You know, I'm the kind of guy who buys the airplane ticket where they're like duct taping you to the nose gear as the plane is rolling because that's just who I am. Uh, I'm frugal. I was raised frugal. But anyway, when I reached that point, I thought to myself, hmm, what would I do now? So basically, I closed my practice, or I took my current job and closed my practice. And I get to do a lot of things that I actually enjoy, and a lot of doctors would probably consider absolute drudgery. It just depends on what you're interested in. I'm going to ask you a practice-related question because my wife's a dermatologist now. She's had her practice for four years. I think those are like owning a practice, operating a practice. It's like skills that we don't learn in residency. We absolutely don't learn. And yes. and sometimes even with an advanced degree, like even having an MBA, it doesn't teach you the nuts and bolts. Do you remember when you first started out? Did you outsource Stuff like the billing and the payroll, or did you do all that stuff yourself? No, I joined an independent practice where we paid essentially an overhead share for that. I got better at it, and that was how I handled that. And I always had one office nurse who was in charge of virtual and then someone to answer the phone on a part-time basis. Nowadays, with it, every year, the Medicare reimbursements seem to be going down. A large portion of physicians' time is spent fighting insurance companies for prior authorizations and things like that. It's, there's been like a lot of consolidation in healthcare, whereas 60, 70% were independent now, and now 80% are employed. And Optum is the largest employer of physicians in the country, 90,000. Do you find the physiatrists, the PMNR docs that are in a younger generation? than you reaching out to you on LinkedIn or other avenues to ask you about advice about their own careers? Or is it just happen chance based on the organizations you work with and advise and things like that? I have actually never had a PM&R doctor ask me about money. Many, oh, many really? other specialties, but not a PM&R doctor. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I I wasn't sure if there was some sort of inherent trust or <laughs> anything like that. Actually, sometimes in medicine, I guess there's the opposite. People think they're in competition with each other also, right? When they shouldn't. That may be. And there's escalation of emotional commitment with physicians. And there is, what is it, transference? They assume their expertise in medicine applies to all things. They're getting into two very dangerous things there. And then there is also the, oh, I have a money guy. Okay. Well, your money guy sold you a whole life policy and you have a variable annuity. Come talk to me if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's all of these physician groups are full of stories of people trying to get out of their whole life policy or trying to do the mental gymnastics of should I just give up on that $100,000 investment that I made into this? And yeah, it's incredibly painful for so many people. There is a great deal of effort in the financial industry, basically to make it appear more complicated than it is. 
It's yeah. really not that complicated. Yeah. At a, at a personal finance level. <laughs> there's plenty of companies also selling some sort of services to manage your investments and charging a percentage AUM fee. And people don't realize that compound interest really eats into their returns over the long term. You know, that somehow 1% has become the standard, but even that adds up to double digit drags on your returns over the course of your investment lifetime. Not to mention if they're uh, working for a company, which most of them are, they are selling the company's product. Absolutely. So outside of your primary career endeavors, you touched briefly on advisory roles and IPOs or stock grants. I know in our previous chat with the personal finance fellows, you talked about how you were one of the first Doximity fellows. I forget yes. if they're called Doximity fellows or something else. Yeah, I don't even know what they're called anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it was that long ago. Do you remember how that opportunity came about? Was it from having a presence on LinkedIn or did you run into them uh, some different way? Did LinkedIn exist then? When were they founded? I, I don't even remember. I, I think I before Doximity. I don't know that they existed. Oh, really? Yes. Someone yeah. reached out to me and I don't remember what exactly it was. And I get a lot of pitches and I join if I think it's reasonable or interesting. So this one was because I'm quite sure Facebook had not gone public yet. And this was, uh, yeah, we're going to be Facebook for doctors. And I was like, what a dumb idea. All right, sure. I'll do this. It's not going to go anywhere, but it sounds fun. That's cool. I miscalculated. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> yeah, but that sounds like a good miscalculation, right? You were able to become a fellow and got some sort of stock equity grant for your participation? or That sounds yeah, like absolutely. a good, good miscalculation. Yeah. So. It was interesting to see because in the beginning, you can see the board composition is doctors and things like that. And then as they move along... Uh, the board composition changes and all of a sudden you've got these people with backgrounds and high finance and public offerings and things like that. It, it's fairly interesting. I just Googled the timeline as you were talking. It looks like Doximity was founded in 2010. The Facebook IPO happened in 2012. Yeah, you're right. It was before the Facebook IPO. But maybe LinkedIn looks like it was around a little bit earlier, like 2002 but you might not have been on it or using it heavily. I probably wouldn't have been. It's probably not the greatest thing to get a physician job. I mean, at the time, I would have been interested in a physician job. Another question, aside from our regular day-to-day -day jobs, there seems to be a lot of sort of shiny object syndrome, I'll call it. How do you keep away from that stuff, like all this noise that you see people becoming incredibly successful with, but it's super high risk, like cryptocurrencies and stuff? I know some people that have really gotten themselves into trouble that haven't even got a basic financial plan in place and keep jumping from one investment class to another. Yeah, with finance, I've always been a conservative person. That's more of an engineering thing. They drill it into you. Anything like that. And before I was formally educated in finance, I was a voracious reader. Bitcoin, that's great. Some people will do great. Most people will not. Some people in the Netherlands made an awful lot of money off tulip bulbs. 
This has been repeated over the course of history. I'm very bright. Possibility that I'm going to outsmart. That number of people is pretty thin. But the likelihood that I can buy an index fund and get 2% annual return, market return, plus historically another 6% in asset appreciation is about 100%. So I'll just go with that and forget it. Finance does not have to be nerve wracking. If you want to day trade Bitcoins, go for it, man. I barely know what they are. I don't have to learn about stuff like that. Yep. No, makes sense. I've been asking some of our guests on the podcast about the rising cost of education. Now, I went to a private undergrad school in 1999. It was NYU. The cost of tuition then was $22,000 a year as a commuter from North Jersey into Manhattan. Now, I just looked it up last week. It's $65,000 a year. And then after undergrad, I went to a state school. I went to Robert Wood Johnson in New Jersey. So I've been asking some of the guests with the rising cost of like education. Do you think that like brand names matter if the cost of private undergrads is five or six X what public schools are? Say you have in your mind that you absolutely want to be a physician in today's day and age. Do you have any opinion on whether any of these private undergrads provide anything that public schools aren't to get Absolutely into medical school? Not. Yeah, I agree with you. I was having this conversation with some people that went to, you know, some schools with one word names and, you know, they were convinced that it helped them get into medical school. And I was like, listen, that was 20 years ago. And now I don't know if the cost of an undergrad education, if you can justify $200,000 plus for undergrad, it seems Insane. It, it might, if you go to an Ivy League undergrad, it might help you get into that Ivy League's medical school. I went to a public technical college. I am a little bit older than you, but I clearly remember the bill for my first semester of college <clears throat> was a little over $1,500. And the cost of my first year of med school, I think was like $11,500. And I thought that was excessive. As yeah, I went to the public state school. And what they call the worst student in the worst medical school when they're done, right? They call them doctor. There's a joke about that in law schools too. What do you call the best students in the law school when they're done? Professor. What do you call most of the students in law school when they're done. Counselor, what do you call the worst students in law school when they're done? Senator. <laughs> <laughs> I probably wasn't the best med student, but I seem to have gotten along just fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's just so many steps as well. There's residency also after that. If, if you want to practice clinical medicine, most people have to match into a residency. So you, you could have gone to the greatest medical school in the world and not match into residency and you're a big setback. Vice versa, you go to an ordinary, quote unquote, ordinary school and wind up in extraordinary residency. And it also depends on what's popular at the time. It's been quite some time ago, but when I was graduating, 
pathology, psychiatry, neurology, which are all, I understand, fairly popular now, were exceedingly unpopular. And a guy I was in med school with, just a guy, nothing special, <clears throat> was trying to decide between which Ivy League institution he was going to do his pathology <laughs> residency at. We were the state school. We weren't anything significant at the end of the day. Yeah, I know you're right. Becoming a doctor itself is like an incredible achievement. And I think most of us in the field start comparing ourselves to XYZ. And we're, we're just incredibly lucky to be in a field where we can do clinical medicine, where we can branch out into other things. There's, there's just a lot of opportunities for those seeking them out. So, yeah. I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. You've already shared so many pearls of wisdom from your own career and financial journey. Anything um, we've left out that you'd like to share? Or I probably would have taken advantage of geographic arbitrage earlier. I practiced full-time medicine for 10 years. I might have cut it to seven. This is labor dynamics. You move to places that would be perceived as less desirable. Your desirability as an asset goes up. If you want to be a pediatrician in Manhattan, the competition is pretty stiff and they probably don't pay you that well. If you want to be a pediatrician in a rural section of the Midwest state, they will roll out the red carpet. Yeah, That's always I, something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Right after I finished residency, I did some locum tenens work and the, the rates to go to rural Maine where I went were like 40, 50% higher than in some other places. And then when I finally took a permanent job as a hospitalist working in Manhattan, was 20% less than just 40 minute commute away in North Jersey. And uh, people were fighting to, <laughs> to work at this place, including me when I was single. Uh, but it was crazy because the salaries are 20% less, the rent is double. And uh, you're right, geographic arbitrage, if you are of the mindset and have the personal situation, family situation to be able to move, it, it can really shave years off the amount of time it forced to work to achieve financial independence, if that's something you're interested in doing. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's about the only thing I would have changed about that. Yeah, I appreciate it. Listen, it's always so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and for being an advisory board member at Anvice. Uh, no problem. I'll catch up with you soon. Nice to see you. Okay, good to see you.